Hello and welcome. This is the Race and Podcast, a series of interviews and conversations hosted by the Society of Architectural Historians, Race and Architectural History Group. My name is Charles Davis, and I'm an Associate Professor of Architectural History at SUNY Buffalo. I am also the host of the Race and Podcast, and I'm here to introduce you to a special series produced in collaboration with Princeton University School of Architecture. This series is entitled American Architecture as a Settler Colonial Project. This series re-examines American architecture through the lens of settler colonialism to identify the ways that racial discourses have distorted our conception of the built environment. It is divided into two parts. Part one examines canonical examples of American architecture and its written theory from the late 19th century to the present. Part two recovers the works of people of color to reprise the countercultural definitions of architecture that have been lost to time. A major goal of these podcasts is to provide teaching plans to primary, secondary, and higher education instructors who wish to examine the role of race on the built environment. Please take a look at the resources provided in the show notes of each episode, which include annotations of each conversation and detailed bibliographies on reference material students can explore. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy our series. Welcome. You're listening to Works in Progress. We're your hosts, Julia Medina. And I'm Takatachi Bay. We're two graduate students from the Princeton School of Architecture, and today we're going to talk about Little Tokyo in Los Angeles. Okay, so I would like to start this conversation by asking you, Taka, as a Japanese American from Los Angeles, what your experience with Little Tokyo was like and what your relationship with that neighborhood is like. Yeah. Growing up, I went to Little Tokyo a lot with my family, and it was always kind of the place where it was like a community center for Japanese people. I don't really know how many Japanese people actually live there currently, but it definitely was the place where my parents would go and speak Japanese with strangers in the city. And we'd go to Japanese grocery stores like Marukai. We'd go to um, Natsumatsuri, which is a summer festival at the local Buddhist temple. And, uh, you know, we'd wait in line for ramen for like hours on end. So it, it was definitely a place where we got to uh, inhabit multiple aspects of Japanese culture. Yeah, I have positive associations with it for sure. I want to note that I grew up in the suburbs about half an hour away from Little Tokyo, which is in downtown LA. Little Tokyo is right next to Skid Row, which is a poor black majority neighborhood that some might call a ghetto. I do wonder what relationship there is between these two places and why the contrast is so stark between them. When you hear the word ghetto, what do you think of? Is it a place? An adjective? Although the term ghetto commonly refers to an impoverished urban neighborhood populated by Black or Latinx people, the history of the term and the places it describes has a largely unknown history. The English word ghetto comes from the Venetian ghetto, a Jewish area of Venice termed due to the neighborhood's proximity to a foundry called ghetto. In fact, the term became associated specifically with these Jewish neighborhoods. These neighborhoods formed because Jewish people were seen as outsiders in most of the European countries they lived in, and public policy forced their segregation. 
In Nazi-occupied Europe, Jewish and Romani people were forced to live in Nazi-established ghettos, which were ultimately transformed into concentration camps. The Shanghai Ghetto was one square mile in Japanese-occupied Shanghai, which held 20,000 Jewish refugees before and after World War II. In the mid-19th century, as German and Irish immigrants formed the first ethnic enclaves in the United States, the term ghetto began to gain popularity in describing these neighborhoods. As Italian and Polish immigrant numbers began to increase, their neighborhoods were often termed ghettos. The term became more closely linked to poverty as opposed to so-called foreign identity when, during the Great Depression, large groups of people would build makeshift shelters and parking lots. As affluent white people increasingly moved from city centers to the suburbs and increased their generational wealth through home ownership, the economic plight they left behind and racial division of labor started to contribute to the racial, urban, and economic connotations of the ghetto. Specifically in Los Angeles, this process resulted in artificial scarcity of housing for impoverished people of color in the city. Historian Scott Kurashige summarizes, While government subsidies spurred construction of a nearly endless supply of single-family houses for suburban and white homeowners, the malnourished public housing system shouldered the stigma of poverty and ghettoization. After Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942, 120,000 Japanese Americans were forced out of their homes into camps, euphemistically called relocation centers. This included the few thousand Japanese Americans living in Little Tokyo at the time, and the fate of the neighborhood became an open question for city officials. According to Kurashige, there was, quote, some talk of turning Little Tokyo into the city's Latin Quarter, which would be both a center of Mexican-American life and a conduit for inter-American trade. But these plans never came to fruition." End quote. In 1943, a black entrepreneur named Leonard Christmas purchased the 100-room Digby Hotel in the neighborhood, which would accommodate black Southern migrants searching for work during the Great Migration of the early 20th century. Other black business owners followed suit and operated restaurants, barbershops, laundries, and hotels. The area became a prominent center for black life, and its many clubs like Shep's Playhouse, Samba Club, and Finale hosted early bebop performances by Charlie Parker and Miles Davis, among others. At this time, with the absence of Japanese Americans, Little Tokyo took on a new name, Bronzeville. Here's LA-based talk show host Ralph Walker interviewing historian Dr. Hilary Jenks about how the neighborhood got its new name. Brownsville, what is that all about? A bunch of brown buildings or what is it? <laughs> well, Brownsville, originally the term comes from Chicago's South Side. So yes, with that great migration to Chicago, um, the South Side is where most African Americans ended up living due to segregation and restrictive covenants. And it got nicknamed Bronzeville. And so the term carried, you know, other places, sometimes the African American neighborhood would get called that. And in LA, uh, in particular, we, we got a Bronzeville in World War II. Um, Wait a minute, LA had a Bronzeville? For a very brief time in the 1940s, yes. It's notable that a change in ethnic demographics would come with a change in name for the neighborhood, especially when it's considered alongside the limited areas non-white people were allowed to inhabit at the time. Before the war, Little Tokyo was home to about 10,000 residents, the majority of whom were Japanese Americans. 
with 95% of Los Angeles being unavailable to black Southern migrants during the war due to segregation and racially restrictive covenants, the area formerly known as Little Tokyo housed around 25,000 residents, the majority of whom were African American. This didn't stop the surrounding wealthy white residents from participating in fear-mongering campaigns that instilled a sense of danger being inherent to the black bodies that occupied this non-white space. In May 1944, the Los Angeles Times falsely cited that nearly 80,000 black residents were jammed into the one-square-mile neighborhood, which led the city health officer George Ohl to condemn housing units to prevent a public health crisis. He remarked, quote, Many of these people who come from Louisiana and Texas have no knowledge of sanitation and health standards, end quote. These fear-mongering campaigns attached ethnic identity to spatial practices that were caused by the finite boundaries of non-white space. Kurashige assesses, quote, while thousands of African-American workers were squeezing into shacks, sheds, and storefronts, thousands of whites given a helping hand by the government were moving into new suburban homes with modern amenities, end quote. Ultimately, the name change from Little Tokyo to Bronzeville can be read in the same way with whiteness defining its own spatial boundaries and making non-white space artificially scarce with a clear and distinct name. Bronzeville should not be read as an ethnic landscape that stands in opposition to Japanese-American spatial practices. Examples of inter-ethnic solidarity were made apparent through the stewardship of Japanese-American cultural properties by black community leaders, but these were complicated by competing spatial needs of each community. Like most properties that Japanese-Americans needed to sell or lease before entering the internment camps, the Los Angeles Humpa Hungwonji Buddhist Temple was leased to the Providence Baptist Church, which had a black congregation. The church's pastor recognized a, quote, moral obligation to safeguard Japanese interests, end quote, in the property, but he simultaneously noted that the church was, quote, proceeding on the assumption that the Japanese would never be back in this area in large enough numbers to justify a property of this magnitude. This was a reasonable assumption based on anti-Japanese rhetoric from the mayor of Los Angeles. In his radio address of June 2, 1943, Los Angeles Mayor Fletcher Bowron stated, quote, We in Los Angeles ought to know our Japs. We are not going to be fooled if others are. And those Japanese released through warm human sympathy of the administrators of the War Relocation Authority had better not come back to Los Angeles, end quote. The internment order was lifted on January 2, 1945, which allowed Japanese Americans to return to Little Tokyo. With the same restrictive covenants that barred non-white subjects from living in most neighborhoods in Los Angeles, Japanese Americans struggled to find housing in the limited areas they were allowed. This gave rise to a spatial tension. And as Kurishige notes, quote, as the end of the war approached, it was clear that two communities, Bronzeville and Little Tokyo, were standing on the same geographic location, end quote. This would ultimately lead to the Hongwanji Buddhist Temple evicting the Providence Baptist Church, despite the terms of the lease lasting through the duration of the war. Through a court battle, the church won occupancy rights and $5,000 in damages, but ultimately was unable to purchase the building outright, which rendered their presence temporary. White leaders like Mayor Fletcher Barron stoked fears that tensions would arise between Japanese Americans and African Americans in the form of race riots to reclaim space. But black activists made concerted efforts to push back against this narrative. 
Ebony Magazine was instrumental in a PR campaign to describe the integration of Little Tokyo and Bronzeville as a miracle in race relations. They would write in July 1946 that, quote, the race war that flopped had not a single case of violence or a single disturbance between the two minorities with the mixture of chitterling and sukiyaki, of jive and Japanese being a heartfelt kinship grown between the two minorities, both victims of race hate. Efforts by Japanese Americans and African Americans to coexist were undermined by the further deprivation of space allotted by white leadership for people of color. I mean, essentially what happened was that uh, in 1950, the city announced that they were going to take this whole block of what became Parker Center that was part of Little Tokyo The notorious police chief Is William H. Parker, yes. Okay. Um, so once they uh, announced that, a lot of people moved out ahead of the bulldozers or what have you, but basically it was like it was clear the whole block was going to be gone. And, and that block had, a, a, it's a very large block, it had a slew of Japanese American businesses, it also had a lot of residents in hotels um, and other, other rooming houses on that block, and about 90% of the people who lived there were black. And there was 3,000 people who lived on that block. So once Parker Center, once the city came in and said we're going to build Parker Center, that pretty much killed off Bronzeville. Mm, you know, so many people having to move demise of Bronzeville. Mm -hmm, exactly. And it was really because the city said, you know, we don't really value real estate associated with either of your communities, so this is convenient, let's build it here. The construction of the new LAPD headquarters, Parker Center, marked a greater presence of white police in Little Tokyo that disproportionately displaced black residents. The eventual return of the neighborhood as a Japanese-American cultural hub, along with the presence of white police and the displacement of black Americans, illustrates the different racial positions each community occupied in relation to one another. As political scientist Claire Jean Kim describes in her essay, The Racial Triangulation of Asian Americans, Asian subjects are triangulated between white and black subjects as a way of supporting the project of white dominance while simultaneously being perceived as a perpetual foreigner. The favoring of Japanese Americans in Little Tokyo over black Americans in Bronzeville instrumentalized Asian subjects into anti-blackness, while continuing to subjugate all people of color into a finite boundary that can be continually made smaller with the presence of police. Settler colonialism is a practice in which migrants invade land that does not belong to them, usually as a method of building wealth, and seek to replace the existing population through force. In the case of the United States, this act of colonization and the following acts of racialization, genocide, and oppression were devastating to indigenous Americans and continued to exploit people of color. The settler colonialist project is inextricably linked to the preservation of whiteness and the consolidation of wealth and power. Inevitably, this practice includes discriminatory housing practices and concerted efforts on the part of white people to keep their communities segregated. This case study of Little Tokyo and its transition to Bronzeville and back exposes the forced nature of the ghetto in Los Angeles. Through forced scarcity caused by laws that barred Japanese Americans from living in white neighborhoods, after World War II, Bronzeville became the location of two ethnic groups, placed at odds with each other through no fault of their own. As Kuroshige explains, as Nisei, second-generation Japanese Americans, in 1940s Los Angeles sought to form communities through self-empowerment rather than forced segregation, they found that the ghetto was, quote, 
not a fixed geographical marker, but an ideological designation that followed Japanese Americans and people of color of any standing wherever they went. The same goes for Bronzeville. As Dr. Hilary Jenks discusses earlier in this podcast, the specific events that transpired in the 1940s resulted in a Bronzeville in Los Angeles. Named for the supposed color of its inhabitants' skin, Bronzeville became a place as black people moved to the area. It did not exist as a place before then. Whereas white European immigrants were eventually able to assimilate and dissolve or not dissolve their ethnic enclaves, people of color were continually forced through housing laws and explicit discrimination to live in segregated communities which were often under-resourced, over-policed, and generally disparaged by white people in the area. The theories of segregation which differentiate between decisions made by people of color and immigrants versus those made by white people and the government elucidate the distinction between an ethnic enclave and a so-called ghetto. We hope that by looking closer at an often overlooked piece of history, we complicate the common understanding of ethnic landscapes and investigate the role of whiteness in their formation and subjugation. To return to Ralph Walker interviewing historian Dr. Hilary Jenks, we offer a key reflection. What, what is an ethnic landscape anyway? What do we right. even mean when right. we say that? Um, that so I what just do felt, we mean when we say an ethnic landscape? Well, what? this is what I mean. Any landscape, if people live on it, is an ethnic landscape, right. right? I mean, these ideas of like, well, some things are and some things aren't. It's just our way of like trying to normalize whiteness by not naming it and saying like, oh, we're just going to talk about Thai town or we're going to talk about you know Little India instead. Places matter. That they organize people's experiences and their opportunities, and. Just because you name something with some simple nickname, like Little Tokyo or Bronzeville, frequently that means people think it's okay to kind of wipe it off the map or never go there, like mm-hmm. you said, you know? And it's not, it's the opposite. These are the richest places that we have. These are where we all come from, and we need to reinvest in them as opposed to erase them. Of course, places like Little Tokyo include cultural offerings not commonly found elsewhere and can serve as respites for immigrant communities, they also have histories latent within them that reveal racial dynamics that we still struggle with today. Losses in collective memory of places like Bronzeville in Los Angeles only serve to perpetuate American myths of opportunity and freedom that obfuscate the role whiteness has played in oppressing people of color. Therefore, the spatial practices of people of color in places like Little Tokyo and Bronzeville are reactionary to limitations placed upon them, and should be read as uniquely American experiences in the face of violent settler colonial practices. Thanks again for joining us. Please check the show notes for the books and articles we referenced and the wonderful artists whose songs we used. See you next time. That concludes this episode of the Race and Podcast. For updates on future episodes, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at race and podcast, all one word. To access the show notes and more information on our guests, please visit the Society of Architectural Historians Race and Architectural History Affiliate Group page at saahraah.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>